Hello! Welcome to The Wandering Bard. Today I bring you Kirsty Logan, no less. I've been so excited to interview this amazing writer. She's based in Glasgow. She wrote one of my favorite books of all times titled The Gracekeepers, which is it's so many things together. It's, um, it's a dystopia set in a flooded world, but it has a circus and it's queer and it's, you know, it has a bear in it. <laughs> it's just it's beautifully, beautifully written. And she has also put out another novel, The Gloaming, which I'm very, very excited to read. I haven't got to it yet, but it's there on my shelf waiting for me to finish this creative writing PhD. <laughs> I'm trying to finish now and then, you know, that will be the first book <laughs> I'll get. Kirsty Logan, um, yeah, I met her back in 2015 when I was, you know, a young girl. I just finished reading The Gracekeepers and I was amazed because it was one of the first books I read with queer and gender fluid characters, which to me was such a revelation and I felt like, oh my god, so important and so such a special moment. So I remember just googling her, going to her website and she had like a contact email there and I just had this fangirl moment um, right there and I just wrote her an email saying how much I had loved the Gracekeepers, how much I had loved the characters, the incredible, complex and believable female characters I could actually relate to. And yeah, just praising her books and saying how much I loved it and asking her at the very end if I could possibly interview her for a podcast I was involved with back then called The Writing Life. And, you know, not expecting anything from that because, you know, she was a famous author, so I thought, you know, she'll be super busy, that's fine. But she replied, like, super fast, and she was the kind of person, and she was like, oh yeah, of course, I'll do the interview, and yeah, that was incredible. And then, back in 2017, she actually came to Lancaster University, well, I'm finishing my PhD, um, and she came to talk to the MA students, and she also agreed at that time to actually be interviewed a second time um, by me. As I said, I'm just a big fan of her work and I, I knew she had done writer residency in Spain. So I was just, you know, wondering about all that and about her travels to Iceland that also inspired uh, her second novel, The Gloaming. So yeah, you're gonna at least hear about all that in just a moment when you hear to this interview. But before leaving you, I wanna tell you uh, something that Kirsty actually uh, said to the MA students at Lancaster Uni when she came to do this um, talk last year and, you know, <laughs> she said something very important. She said, um, we all have something strange and weird about us, something that perhaps we really like or a style of writing or something that perhaps has been criticized in the past or people have said, huh, what is this? Just because it's, it's weird. But she was, instead of trying to hide your weird parts as a writer, in, instead of trying to be just normal or perfect by the standards, you know, whatever they are, try to protect that weird part because that's what makes you unique. And in the end, <laughs> she said, uh, in the end, that's what will actually make you appealing uh, by others. And I think she was talking about the famous niche audience. But she, you know, she was just super honest and she said, I was writing about queer mermaids when I was doing my creative writing MA and people were like, Pfft. And now, I mean, she's the one our author writing about queer mermaids and so many other really cool things. And we all love her because of that. So you're a writer and artist and you are listening to this and you are worried about your weird parts. Um, I'm worried about my weird parts as well. Let's just, you know, let's just protect them, as she says. Um, who knows? They may take us far away. So thank you so much for being there. And I will leave you with Kirsty Logan's interview just now. used to travel from one country to another, telling us stories of the places they had been and the places they were going, and recording, in a rich and diverse way, what it means to be human. We need such storytellers now more than ever. The opportunities for travel today may be greater than in the days when wandering birds had to journey on foot, or, if they were lucky, on the back of a donkey. But there is a growing anxiety about travel, tourism, migration, and the movement of people, which is creating global tension, isolationism, and insecurity. Telling stories to each other, and listening to them, is a way of empathizing, of seeing through someone else's eyes. 
It's a way of bringing down barriers, creating bridges, telling and listening to a story that expands horizon, enriches cultures, encourages open-mindedness and a collaborative spirit. Stories make us care about each other. They bring human beings together as the one community inhabiting this one planet. The Wandering Bard aims to do just that, to bring people together and give a voice to those who may feel silenced or uprooted. We are a community of nomad artists, graphic illustrators, novelists, poets, sculptors, journalists, filmmakers, and photographers. We use both conventional and digital pathways to share art and connect with others. Hi, Kirsty. I'm very happy to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a total pleasure. And the first question I want to ask you is the question we ask all our guests. Um, please let me know one place, wherever in the world you want, that is very important for you as a writer. It can be anywhere and for whatever reason. Mm, good question. Um, I have to say Iceland. Um, the country, not the shop. <laughs> um, it's somewhere that I just absolutely love. I went for the first time a few years ago with my wife just for a holiday and we just absolutely fell in love with it. And we went back again for our honeymoon. And then I loved it so much that I went back again for a writing residency for a month. Um, and that's where I started writing this book of horror stories that I'm writing just now. And uh, it's just such an amazing place. It's like nowhere else on the planet. It's it's absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, I just I just love it so much. I want to go back as much as I possibly can. And uh, my ne my next book, the one that I'm going to start um, when I finish this, which is the next novel, is um, set in a kind of mythical alternate version of Iceland. Mm. So, what is it that you like in Iceland? Is it like the landscapes, which I know? I mean, I've never been there, but I know they're quite quite particular. Or... yeah it's just it just looks like nowhere else it's honestly it's as if you're on the moon or something it's got all these black sand beaches and these huge blue glaciers it's got these geysers which never seemed that exciting to me until I actually saw one and it's just you can see where all the old stories come from about angry gods because it does feel like <laughs> something something huge and inexplicable is feeling a strong emotion <laughs> even though you know logically speaking that it's just a geological effect it just seems so magical and profound and powerful it's it's just an amazing place and I love all the stories the mythology um everything like that the way that it looks physically is is kind of like if you took the highlands of Scotland mm. and then times them by a hundred That's wow. what it all looks like. And the Highlands are beautiful, obviously. I'm um, incredibly fond of all of the Scottish landscape. Um, but yeah, Iceland is just this kind of incredible northern landscape. It's just amazing. And I love all the old stories. Just love everything about it. It's a lovely, brilliant place. And I like that it's cold. I'm not really a hot weather girl myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, because when you said it was like lunar landscape, when I went to the I Love the Sky... In Scotland, mm -hmm. that's what I thought. I thought it's a place like nowhere else, but then... Uh. Yeah, the sky is so beautiful. I mean, all the the islands are just incredible and, and also different. Um, I did a bit of a trip um, with my wife around some of the islands, because obviously Scotland has lots and lots of islands. I haven't been to all of them. Um, but we did a little trip, and we went to this island that's called Staffa. It's a very small, tiny island. Nobody lives on it. It's very, very mm. small, um, but it's kind of made out of this amazing rock I don't know if you've seen it um but it's these this kind of pillars of rock pillars of black rock and it looks like it's been carved mm. it's really hard to believe that it's just naturally gone like that and I remember the tour guide said oh it used to be believed that it was made by an angry giant who stamped his feet and it made these rocks pop up but really we know that it was I can't remember what his explanation was something about volcanic eruption underneath the sea and then when he says that you think oh, I don't know the giant just seemed more convincing <laughs> it seems so so unreal such a beautiful unreal landscape that you think quite easy to believe that it was made by a giant to be honest mm. would you say like landscape 
inspires characters for you? Does it come first? Yeah, definitely. I think um, one of the first things that I think of when I'm making a story in my head is this sense of place and the mood of a place. It's really, really important to me. Um, I do try and go on, on residencies and retreats when I can because I think being in a different physical landscape can have such a huge effect on your writing mm. and, and on the, the types of things that you write about and the mood of the things that you're writing about. Um, I'm very affected by weather as well, um, which in Scotland we have a saying, uh, which is if, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes and it will change. <laughs> Even while we've been talking, um, it was snowing earlier. I got absolutely <laughs> soaked in the snow. And then now it's beautiful golden sunshine. Um, and in a minute it's <laughs> And start raining so god <laughs> just the whole all the weather all the time yeah i might have to move back to scotland i used to live in edinburgh mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. yeah lancaster is all rain rain and more rain <laughs> yeah. we have rain we just have a bit of everything else around mm-hmm. the rain <laughs> so going back to what you just said about um going to different places and how that's very important for you as a writer um, apart from Scotland, oh sorry, Iceland, have you gone to any other different slash exotic places in your writing retreats? Um, yeah, so a couple of years ago I went to Finland for a month, which was really incredible. Actually, that's when I started writing The Gloaming, which is the novel that's out um, in April. Mm. Um, I started that there and I was really inspired by the landscape. I was there in September, so it was really amazing seeing the change of the season because when we first got there, it was quite warm. It was still the end of summer. And then by the time we were leaving, all the fields had all turned and all the leaves had turned and it was really amazing. And uh, I did a thing which is um, swimming in a lake and it was pretty cold. Mm. So we, we just went out and swam in this lake, this very, very deep black lake which you can only see about six inches into the water so of course I then became convinced that there was some type of creature <laughs> at the bottom <laughs> you know you the um reeds bump against your legs and you're like oh yeah. my god um but it was great and I've never been so cold in my life it was that way that it's so cold on your skin that you think you're hot Mm. I've never felt that before I've been pretty cold before but I've never been so cold that I thought I was hot <laughs> which is a really interesting experience I actually put that in the book um they they go swimming in a in a loch because it's in Scotland rather than a lake um and yeah it was it was really good and then also last year I did a month's residency in Granada in Spain which was a very very different experience um it was even later in the year it was in October mm. and it was still very very hot I mean for me being a Scottish girl it was absolutely boiling <laughs> my factor 50 sun cream on every day but it was really amazing it's a really beautiful place and I got in this habit of going for these big long walks every day um I found a kind of cycle track that went out of the city and it seemed to just go on into infinity as far as Mm. I could tell because I walked for two hours one day and I didn't come to any type of end to the track so it seemed like it was just this endless (laughs) track (laughs) all these farmhouses and through all these fields just kind of going on endlessly and it was great so every day I would just have my have my late lunch and then um, go on this huge big long walk and then come home and have my siesta and be full of story ideas. Um, it was really good. So I, I think every place that you go to, you, you end up getting your own rhythm and learning how to to go with the rhythm of the place where you are. So yeah, definitely. I love it. If anyone's doing a residency, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask you, how did you get these residencies? I just apply, just like anybody else. Um, mm. Just see the call for them and just put an application together and just apply. There's no uh, there's no witchcraft or trickery involved. <laughs> just just the same as everyone else on application. Yeah, I don't know. I always thought, when I thought about res- residencies in writing, I always thought about, you know, going to the countryside or something. I never thought, although of course now it makes a lot of sense that you could also travel abroad. And that seems like so exciting because, as you were saying, I bet being in a different country mm-hmm. is very inspiring as well, just because, I mean, everything is different. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's of course, 
getting into the different cultures and the different foods and the different ways of being in the other place is hugely inspiring and for me it's getting out of the rhythm of my daily life as well because I get asked a lot you know what's your writing routine and honestly I wish I had one or I wish I had a good one because (laughs) I really don't um it's, it's hard to work at home you know you get so distracted oh I'll just quickly do the dishes oh, I'll just quickly put a wash mm. on oh I meant to check the electricity bill oh I meant to do this it's so easy to just do that and then before you know it the whole day's gone and you think I am written anything today which is not what you want to do as a writer obviously you want to prioritize your mm. writing um so it really helps me to, to try and get away I'm going to do an experiment in the next couple of weeks which I'm going to try and merge residency life and home life and I've prepared my wife for this and I've said I'm going to clear this week I'm not going to do anything else this week and I'm going to just go into my own brain the way that I would on residency because part of the joy of residency is you don't really have to talk to anyone or do anything so you can just kind of live in your own little fantasy story world that you've made up so I've said that's what I'm going to do I'm going to be at home but I'm going to go inside my own head and in the evening um you know, maybe you want to hang out and watch a film like we usually do, but I can't because I'm going to be on a residency in my head. So don't be hurt if I don't really talk to you much during the week because I'm going to be busy working, but it will just be for that one week and then I'll come back and I'll be your loving wife once more. But this <laughs> for that week, um, I'm going to have to be inside my own head. And she was like, yeah, you know, do do your thing. <laughs> um, so that's what I'm going to try. So I'll report back on whether it works. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very curious now to see if that works. Maybe, you know, if it works, that can also be helpful for me to finish my thesis. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know if it can because, I mean, I like hanging out with her. I like seeing my friends. You know, Mm. I like doing these things. So it's going to be, you know, if you're in a different country, you can't do those things. So you think, Mm. well, I might as well go on with my work because I haven't got anything else to do. Um, so I don't know how I'll manage it if I'll just become easily distracted, but uh, mm. I need to try anyway. <laughs> so being in, being for example in Finland or in Spain or even Iceland, um, because you don't know the language of the country, was it easy for you to go around with English, or the language barrier sometimes was complicated or? Yeah, I mean, Finland and Iceland were um, quite easy because everyone speaks perfect English. Um, I tried to learn just the absolute basics of the language, but Icelandic is a very, very difficult language, Mm. and uh, Icelanders are normally very understanding, but it's a very hard language, and not very many people who aren't Icelandic speak it. Um, Mm. But So I didn't have any troubles with that at all. They were very... um, very understanding and you know they will speak English Spain a bit more so because I had assumed that most people would speak English and I I speak only the the very very basic Spanish Um, I can't even really hold a conversation in Spanish I Mm. try but I can only do basic kind of statements really um but yeah most people didn't actually speak English or didn't speak very good English anyway I mean better than my Spanish to be honest um but I got by fine there was a lovely guy who ran the cafe where I went for lunch most days who didn't speak a word of English and obviously I don't speak any Spanish and uh we communicated fine it was actually (laughs) really interesting you become very good at kind of a rough and ready type sign language and (laughs) kind of facial expressions and things like that so yeah we managed to communicate quite well um it was nice like one day I came in and he had a um cast on his arm and you know I kind of motioned like what happened to your arm Mm. and he managed to convey to me that he'd accidentally dropped a table on his arm and had to go to hospital you know neither of us understood a single word that each other was saying but we still managed to convey these these notions or he was trying to show me um how to eat a particular fruit because he brought me this fruit for for the dessert for my lunch and I'd never seen this fruit before um they apparently don't import it to the UK and uh, so I was you know confused like do I just pick it up and eat it do I cut it up what do I do with this fruit and mm. he showed me how to how to <laughs> consume this fruit which was um, really interesting so I really enjoyed it it's really interesting as a writer to be in a position where you can't use language because mm. Of course, that's what you do all day, every day, is is use language. So um made me think about things differently to be forced to not use the thing that I mostly rely on. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was laughing when you were saying, because 
as a Spanish person, yes, I know in Spain. People, I mean, English. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think we are just very bad at, yeah, at languages generally. I think it has to do with... Um, we dub all the films we have in the cinemas. Yes. Which is so bad. It's so horrible. <laughs> I did notice that, actually. I didn't watch any TV at all. Because normally in other countries, you can still, if you want to, watch TV because it's subtitled. Mm. So you can just kind of ignore the subtitles and listen to the English. But, I, yeah, I noticed that it was all, all dubbed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. But then I think it's the same. It's perhaps a similar attitude of people who speak English are generally myself included quite lazy about learning other languages because we think oh look at how many different countries already speak english and of course if you speak for example icelandic mm. no other countries apart from iceland speak that language you know no other countries as far as i'm aware speak finnish apart from finland so if you only speak that one language there's not a huge amount of people that you can talk to whereas of course there are many many spanish-speaking countries so it's quite easy to think, oh, well, if even if I only speak Spanish, that's still an awful lot of people mm. in the world that I can speak to. Mm. I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, I was thinking, possibly, because definitely you live in a really small country, like the Netherlands. Everyone in the Netherlands speaks awesome English, <laughs> because, <laughs> because they have to. Yeah, but in Spain, perhaps, because we have all South America and so on. But it's so fun what you were saying. Um, because communication is also like an attitude, I feel. So when you were telling the story of the man in the cafe with the broken arm, you were telling it as if you were just chatting about it. And that's so great because it's an attitude, isn't it? Like, if you really want to communicate something, I feel that you can't even surpass the barrier of language sometimes. Yeah, and it's funny when I look back on it, I feel like I did have a conversation with him. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't in language, in spoken language at all but if, like, when I look back on it I think oh yeah I had a nice chat with that guy but I didn't at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah the way it felt so talking about language is um, language something you have ever experimented in your writing with like I'm thinking have you ever tried to make up another language or use a foreign language in your writing I haven't really because I I wouldn't know how to start making up a completely separate language because I don't understand the basics of linguistics well enough. So any language I made up wouldn't be consistent and it wouldn't make sense in the general rules of linguistics. But I do use kind of made up words in my fiction, kind of peppered in amongst the English. So for example, in the Gracekeepers, obviously Gracekeeper is mm. not a word. Um, that's a word that I made up. And um, there are a few words in there that are made up I just thought that they sounded nice and had good connections to what I wanted I've also discovered that although I keep saying I only speak um English I always forget that of course I understand Scots which mm. is usually called a dialect rather than a language although of course that is contentious and I'm not saying um which side of that I come down on um but I always forget because we're so used to it because people in Scotland pepper in Scots words in their English speech so often that we sometimes forget that they aren't English words. And I actually didn't realise this until I got a London publisher. Mm. I would send the manuscript of a book to them and they would kind of circle all these words and say, oh, is this a word that you've made up? And I was like, no, what? that's an English word. And it's not at all an English word, it's a Scots word. But because I use it just as a part of normal daily language, I hadn't realised that it wasn't actually an English word so for example the word swither it means to not be able to decide something so you know you are in the mm. shop and you're swithering do I want to have eggs or do I want to have chicken for dinner um and I hadn't realized that that wasn't an English word <laughs> because it's just such a commonly used word here or things like saying that the weather is dreek that's a real Scots word that is very useful in Scotland because it means a kind of a grey, drizzly, depressing sort of weather. Um, a lot of words don't really have a, they don't really have an English equivalent, mm. um, which is of course why we use the Scots one. Um, but I, yeah, I've peppered them through my work a lot, not always on purpose. Normally I just 
I'm using the words as I would use them in normal daily language. And it's only later that I show them to somebody else that I realize, oh, this isn't an English word at all. Mm. And I hadn't realized. That's that's so interesting. I actually used to know Scots because I studied Scottish literature in Edinburgh. Ah. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, you know, completely like, oh, I'm going to live in Edinburgh. So I'll study Scottish literature at uni. And then the first day I arrived there thinking, OK, you know, my English is not that bad. I can't do this. <laughs> suddenly we are reading this poem by Burns <laughs> and I was like oh, yeah. no <laughs> what is this but by the end of the course I can tell you like because we were we read a lot of novels in the Scots and so on and I really loved it I really enjoyed it so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I sometimes wonder I mean in the accent as well obviously I have a very soft accent but if um if people have the real full-on Glasgow accent I do sometimes wonder how easy is that for people to understand if you're not from here because I even occasionally hear someone with a really broad accent and think I have no idea what you're saying at all (laughs) so with the Scottish words you use or the Scots words have you ever tried to keep them in your writing or they would just disappear through the editing process Oh, no, I always keep them um, because I think that it's clear, even if people haven't heard the word before, I think it's clear from the context what the word means. Um, And I quite like that perhaps people have thought that it's a word that I've made up or Mm. maybe they think that it's a Scots word, but it's actually a word that I've made up. Um, (laughs) And I really like that. I played with it even more, obviously, in the gloaming in that each chapter is named a Scots word and then I actually put a little glossary at the back (laughs) with all the different definitions so if people want to learn some new Scots words then um, they can learn them just from the the chapter titles in the book. Oh my god I so much buy in the book now that I know that I mean I was before but I'm like it has Scots yes. (laughs) Such good words and I think what I like about a lot of Scots words is Um, they're very emphatic when Mm. you say them and there's no because there's no definition no kind of English um, translation of them sometimes that's just the word that you need so there's a word that I love which is glaikit which is difficult to translate like I always picture it as you know like a teenage boy and he's kind of slumping along and you ask him to do something and he's like I don't want to and (laughs) this kind of it doesn't quite mean stupid it's kind of a little bit stupid, a little bit distracted, a little bit brainless. Um, and it's just so good to say, because it's, it's not the same. So, you know, to say to someone, you are being pure glicate. <laughs> it's not quite the same as saying you're being stupid. Mm. Um, so they're, they're, a lot of them are really fun to say as well. Wow. Almost on the matapeic, I think. Mm. That's very interesting. And so you were saying that you started writing the gloaming when you were in Finland mm-hmm. is that so so I was just wondering whenever you are abroad and you are writing does the fact that you are abroad makes you like look back to your own country or home in a different way so you can sort of start writing fiction about it yeah absolutely I think it's the same as time isn't it it's really difficult to mm. write about a time in your life while you're in it living mm. it you need to get a bit of distance from it in order to look at it and be able to see it with a little bit of a dispassionate eye in order to write about it and I think physical locations the same um I actually started for example I started writing a story about Granada when I was in Spain and I couldn't make it work and then I just finished it the other day because I can write it now because I'm not there anymore whereas while I was there I think you can you can be inspired by the place and you can be inspired by the mood of the place, but I can't literally write about a place while I'm in it because um, I'm just too close to it and I'm too much living the rhythms of it and living every day of it. And then it's difficult because I think to write about something, you need to be able to almost hold it in your hand and hold it at arm's length and be able to look at it. And you can't do that when you're right in amongst it. Um, so it definitely helps me to write about Scotland when I'm not in Scotland. Now that I think about it, actually, I've written... Most of the things I've written about Scotland are not when I'm physically here, when mm. I've been somewhere else. It's easier to look at, I think. Yeah, because when I lived in Spain, I never considered writing about Spain. Um, I don't know, like, I, I think I just guessed. I think I didn't see it interesting enough, which perhaps is a bad thing, but I was also very young, so it's like, uh, Spain. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> you know, like, uh, not exciting enough. 
but now that um, I've been living in the UK for quite some years, yeah, I start writing about Spain and actually like living in another country and living in the like British culture, if you want, makes me realize that Spanish culture is so weird, like such as, you know, for example, like all the Catholic influence. I don't know if you noticed anything when you were in Granada, but mm-hmm. I never realized like the churches inside in Spain, they are like horror museums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which for me was completely normal. I, I actually did notice that. I found it really fascinating and really inspiring. Um, and in Granada in particular, they've got this picture everywhere of the Virgin Mary, but crying. Yeah. This kind of very beautiful woman crying. And these pictures are absolutely everywhere. And one day I was just wandering around the city and I found a, like a butcher's market, a kind mm. of covered market. So it was this huge building and it wasn't air conditioned. It was boiling hot. It was full of just this endless racks of meat, like huge red racks of ribs and kind of internal organs, absolutely everything, all types of meat. And then on all the walls was all these pictures of this crying woman. And it was so bizarre, just this juxtaposition of those two things was so weird to me. And I was became really fascinated by it. And I thought it was kind of oddly beautiful and disturbing. Mm. And then later in the month, there was a... We had to go to this press conference and the mayor was there and he said, you know, tell me what you liked about Granada. And I was like, oh, you know, I like the sun and I like siestas. When I really like these crying women in the butchers. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I think he was really horrified. And he said, well, I hope you found more. in the city. And I was like, oh, no, I did. I found loads. It was great. But I think he was really bothered that I had come to his beautiful historical <laughs> city and all I had noticed was these crying women <laughs> at the butcher shop <laughs> yeah I mean who, but who wouldn't like seriously yeah they, I mean I remember taking a, a British friend inside this really big church in the town where my grandmother lives and I just wanted to show her how beautiful this church is and she was completely horrified because one of the statues in the church was the head the severed head of St. John I think the Baptist yeah. but completely gory like you know with the blood and everything and I was like yeah actually I've always seen that but yeah that looks a bit like <laughs> extreme mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's what I mean you have to kind of leave a place yeah to experience a different culture and see what's different because that's what we like to write about right we write about things that are unusual or noteworthy in some way we don't necessarily want to write about the things that are the same everywhere we want to write about what's different and how different places do things differently and I think we only really notice what's different once we live a slightly different lifestyle and then you notice these things yeah because I had mentioned these crying women and the people I was staying with Hmm. just they had noticed them but they had not really thought twice about them yeah just thought it was kind of a regular thing and I know that a lot of friends um who are from different countries and come here to Scotland and Edinburgh in particular can't believe how old the buildings are Mm. and I don't think they are particularly old I think they're just normal (laughs) but then of course if you're from a country where all the architecture is very new of course it does all look incredibly old and you know the kind of winding streets and the cobbles and things like that is all very unusual whereas I wouldn't even think to really describe that if I was writing about a street describing it I wouldn't Mm. particularly describe it as winding and cobbled because to me that's just a street but then of course when you go somewhere else you think actually that is noteworthy that is worth describing Mm. and now I'm just very curious and if I may ask the story you wrote about Granada does it have um, Spanish characters or I'm just curious Um, well not really because it well it's about um a foreign woman, a non-Spanish woman who is staying in Spain and she doesn't speak any Spanish and um, she works at a library that doesn't have any books in it, which is a real place. So the the residency that I was staying at, um, it, yeah, part of it was at this library which didn't have any books yet. What? Oh, yet. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah, it's been open for a while, but didn't have any books in it. They were waiting for the uh, books to be delivered. Oh. Um, but they'd been waiting for over a year, so it was really surreal. Wow, well, yeah. This, yeah, this kind of beautiful, huge building ready for these books. But there were no books. And it's really interesting, like, what what is a library with no books in it, you know? Yeah. Um, so it doesn't have any... Spanish characters in it um, because it's mostly this woman being confused and going around and not being able to speak to anyone. Hmm, <laughs> that'd be based on. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Um, but have you ever tried to write about other cultures? Ever in your writing or? I mean, kind of. I'm very aware that um, obviously cultural appropriation um, is something that writers have to think about and talk about a lot. Mm. Um, and I do tend to write from my own life and my own experience. So a lot of what I write is kind of magical realist or fantastical, mm. but it is very much based on my own life and my own emotions. So I do tend to use that as a starting off point. I also don't often write about specific named places. Mm. Uh, so the Spanish story is quite unusual because it specifically says that it's set in Spain, whereas I don't usually specify um, where places are. They may be just for example, will feel like they're probably somewhere northern, like they're probably Scotland or Iceland or um, a Scandinavian country, perhaps. But it doesn't specifically say where they are. Um, and I feel like I do that quite a lot. So it's more kind of feel of a place rather than a specific named place. Like, I don't think I've ever in the history of my writing named a specific street. Mm. I may have once, but I don't remember having done it ever Um so yeah it's more about for me it's more about the feel of the place and it's usually kind of filtered through my own experience or my own observations um rather than trying to put myself inside the head of someone who's completely different to myself I mean all my characters of course are not me none of them are me um but they're all just one tiny little element of of me or my own thoughts or emotions mm. I think all that you said was very interesting because, I mean, the term cultural appropriation uh, has come, has appeared in the in this podcast uh, now and again, and I I don't know, like I I'm still I always think about it. I still don't know what I think about it really, um, because I totally understand what you just said that we all should be very aware of it as writers. I mean, obviously, um, but then sometimes um, as a writer in a second language, sometimes I'm I don't even know where I am anymore or what am I allowed to write anymore in that sense um uh, yeah it's difficult I like what you said about writing about places that are not necessarily named although I I do think that your writing has this really strong sense of place and landscape so it's Mm. yeah it's just not usually a specific yeah named place so for example the gloaming is set on a scottish island but it's not a real one it's not an it's not an actual island it's never named it's just a kind of a fantasy one that i've made up but it hopefully the feel to anyone who's been to any of the the western isles it feels real and it feels like it could be a real place even though it's not a specific real place so for me that's about that's what it's about it's not about specifics it's about getting the right feel Mm. of a place and of course it's up to every individual writer um if they want to write about someone who's very different than themselves um I'm not going to tell them not to do that but for me personally I just don't know if I could make it ring true if I wrote someone that was completely different like I don't write a lot of heterosexual men Mm. for example um just I just don't just characters don't kind of come to me that way um I do obviously occasionally but I probably wouldn't write an entire novel with a heterosexual man as the main character because I don't have a lot of straight male friends um it's not a person I've ever been um it's not a person that I would spend a lot of time with in my life as it is right now so I just feel like it wouldn't ring true I would get it wrong Mm. And so, yeah, I do tend to write women more usually, and um, usually queer women, just because I am a queer woman, and I mostly hang out with queer women, so it's just a type of way of looking at the world that's more familiar to me and feels more natural to me. Mm, yes, and um, I mean, definitely, that's another thing I really love about your fiction. I always think about your gender-fluid characters. I remember some of those in um, in the Gracekeepers. And I think it was one of the very first books I read that had characters that were not necessarily male or female. And I thought it was such an awesome thing. I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I think maybe, you know, the landscape is also fluid. and But at the same time, it's so relatable. So I think you have found a really nice, like, balance there. Like, really beautiful. And yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad it worked for you anyway. <laughs> I like doing that. And that's a thing that you can do in English that 
you can't do in a lot of other languages is to have that gender neutral voice so I know for example when I was in Spain I did a um, bilingual reading um, I didn't read this Spanish obviously because I don't speak Spanish but someone had translated one of my stories mm. and in story it's a gender neutral narrator so it's narrated as I it's, it's the story the rental heart which is from my first book um so the narrator of that story is ungendered but you can't do that in Spanish you, you can't have a gender neutral narrator um because of I'm sure you would know more about this than I do but they said to me it was just the way that languages you can't do that so they um because it was a male reader they yeah. made the character male but I thought that was really interesting because obviously I read the story in English mm. and even though the the character in the story is not gendered people normally understand the character to be female because it's me reading it whereas mm. of course it was the exact same story but with a male reader and I did think that was really interesting yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's one of the things I love the most about writing in English instead of writing in Spanish. Is that freedom that you have of, yeah, you don't have to pick a gender. You're mm -hmm. totally true in Spanish when we speak because all of all our adjectives are just female or male. And that's so frustrating. And I think, yeah, I like, I really like that about English. And I also like about living in another country that because I'm an immigrant, because I'm not from here, somehow I'm also like, allowed to <laughs> to just be me without not caring that much whereas when I and I don't know if that, that, that's something that you also experienced when you were abroad this kind of freedom because nobody knows you you don't you know what I mean like you can just be yourself in a very open way and perhaps in Spain I never felt or in my home country it was you know I don't know maybe this is just me but no, I think that's true. I, I think um, I think that's true to some extent. But I also feel a real weight of responsibility when I'm abroad because I don't want people to think badly of Scotland or <laughs> people. And I feel like if I have a bad day or if I am rude to somebody or if I go out and get drunk and do something embarrassing, people are going to think, oh, aren't Scottish people rude? <laughs> aren't Scottish people always drunk or something like that because maybe not a lot of Scottish people come and stay in that place so then mm. I feel like I have to be a cultural ambassador and you know, <laughs> you know my best behavior all the time so that people have a good impression of the country and it isn't really helped by of course British tourists have got a terrible reputation um I've seen it so much I remember um years ago um I just did a bit of a kind of traveling for a month around um parts of Europe and we went to Auschwitz which was a really incredible mm. absolutely mind-changing experience and then just as we were leaving and of course we were feeling very very um sober and upset it was a very upsetting place to visit obviously we were just leaving and we saw this group of guys you know hanging around the famous gates and they were taking pictures and kind of larking about and um some of the staff had to come over and say to them can you stop doing that and show some respect, please? And I was so ashamed because I walked past them. And of course, they were British. And I was just, and the people I was traveling with were both from New Zealand. So I felt even worse because I was like, oh my God, this is why, why British people? Why have you shamed us all by your terrible behavior? <laughs> and of course, it's ridiculous because nobody's the single ambassador for their people it doesn't work that way just because someone does something stupid that doesn't mean that other people who are in some way connected to them are also stupid in that mm. way but I did feel like that I thought I wish that they would behave better because they're making us all look bad <laughs> I think I think that um sometimes is the case for um sexuality as well and I mm. think sometimes people are expected to be the ambassador for everyone like someone actually genuinely said to me Kirsty what do what do lesbians think about so-and-so thing and I was like <laughs> oh, stupid question I can tell you what I think but I mean that lesbian over there is gonna think something different and then the lesbian on the next yeah. street is gonna think something different again you know <laughs> it was just such a strange thing to me but I think a lot of people do expect that of whichever cultural group you're a part of in whatever combination of your intersectional intersectional identity people think that you somehow speak for everyone and yeah. just how, how ridiculous that is but we do all fall into that way of thinking oh yeah yeah definitely I don't know like coming from Spain like I, I could list so many things I'm ashamed of from my own country starting with the politics for instance so yeah I don't know I just thought at the very end of the day I just thought you know what yes I happen to be born in Spain 
But it's like you say, when they ask you what lesbians think about something, I'm like, you know, I'm just an individual. <laughs> I'm just a person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're all lots of different things all at once. We don't just have yeah. one to our identity. Um, and of course, all those different elements to all of our separate identities inform one another. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but I think one of the beauties of traveling, and for me as a writer as well, is that, yes, you know, I'm from Spain. I was born there. I can't change that. But then I've also felt at home in such different places, like in the Highlands. The Highlands are my favorite place in the world, by the way. (laughs) And I feel so at home there too, you know. And I don't know if this is something that you also had with Iceland, perhaps, that it feels at home. It did. It feels like my spiritual home. I feel like if I believed in anything like past lives, I think (laughs) I was from Iceland in a past life. Um, Does it actually really interesting piece about that there's a writer called Kapka Kasabova who lives in or she did anyway live in the highlands for a while um she's from mainland Europe but I forget which country I don't know her very well Hmm. and so she has lived in lots and lots of different places I know she lived in Spain for a while she's lived everywhere and she has written a lot about the highlands and how she has no connection to there her family aren't from there or anything but as soon as she went there she just felt home she just felt that she had come home and I think that's really fascinating I think everyone has somewhere in the world that is their home and if you're lucky it's where you were born so you're already there but for some people that's not the case and their true home to them is somewhere else in the world and maybe some of us never find it but I think if we're lucky then we do. Well I think that was just a really beautiful concept like having a spiritual home or a home at the other side of the world I think that's just beautiful and I think this is like the perfect place to uh, finish the podcast and let our <laughs> listeners thinking, what is my spiritual home? <laughs> yeah, and it, could be, it could be anywhere. I don't know. I think sometimes maybe it's not even anywhere external. Maybe maybe your, your true home is the person or it's a particular way of being within yourself. It doesn't have to necessarily be somewhere external, but I think, I think mm. everyone has one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. That was so nice. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. So this is a story from the book that I'm currently working on, and the book is called The Night Tender, and this story is called My Body Cannot Forget Your Body, and it's a bit of a strange one, so buckle in. You've heard that when you give birth, the baby can come out in a variety of forms, but there's really no need to worry about it. Whatever emerges, Eventually, it will all come together and make a baby. You might give birth to a quartet of mango-sized objects, or maybe a whole big bunch of grape-sized objects. Painless, but takes a while. Or, if you're unlucky, a pair of blood-orange-sized objects, which you haven't seen, but imagine is a bit of a struggle. You've heard of women birthing things like runner beans, like carrots, like kumquats. You've often wondered why the size of a baby is always compared to fruit and vegetables, but no one has answers for you, so you might as well stop wondering. However the baby comes out, it will all be fine in the end. Your friend Edith births five equal-sized lemons. She says it was awful, just awful, but in the post-birth photo she puts online, she's wearing lipstick and her forehead isn't even shiny, so you're unconvinced. You think you'd quite like to give birth to lemons if you can't have runner beans. You don't get a choice what grows inside you, of course, but you can still hope. Your other friend Lucille births a poppering mess of pomegranate seeds. Her husband left her, so you're there at the birth, and you see the flood of wet red seeds, and it seems it will go on forever. It doesn't look sore, but you still don't want to give birth to pomegranate seeds. During the birth, Lucille squeezes your hand so tight the bones scrape, and a month later when you visit her and the baby, she's still talking about the pain. To be honest, you think it's a bit overdramatic. The seeds must have hurt less coming out than they did going in. But now it's your turn, and it's not good news. 
Look down. You see the size of your bump, how big it's grown, that thing that's even bigger than the biggest melon you've ever seen. That's what you will birth, all in one go, ripping, splitting, round and hard and ripe. It's unusual, yes, but then aren't you unusual? You always were, your mother would say, if she wasn't dead, if she hadn't died birthing the huge, violent, melon-shaped mass of you all those years ago. Come on now, you can't put it off any longer. It's time to push. You may be unusual, but you are not special. The doctor has others after you. On the surgical tray, the needle and thread lie ready. This is an extract from The Gloaming, which is my upcoming novel, which is due out on the 19th of April. The world was so full of magic then that Mara didn't always know when she was awake and when she was asleep and dreaming. At night, she'd lean out of the window to see the sleeping island lit by stars. She'd watch the silvery flicker of midges catching the moon on their wings. She'd smell the coppery, sweet rot scent of the enchantments she knew lurked under the earth. She'd hear the steady breathing of the sea, slow and deep as a giant's. She knew that if she could stretch up over the treetops, she'd see dozens of jellyfish glistening on the stones. She knew that behind her and beneath her was home, this rambling storybook mansion of 50 rooms, some shut up for years, a sanctuary for tiny creeping things, four stone walls enclosing a land of mysteries, each of them belonging to her. She'd feel the cold breeze and jag herself on splinters from the buckled windowsill, and it would all feel as real as a dream. Once she crept into B's room and whispered him awake, asking him to please hit her as hard as he could because the splinters didn't hurt enough to be sure. He wouldn't and got upset and cried soft little huffling tears until she tucked him in and said it wasn't real. What she had said wasn't real. He was only dreaming. She never asked her sister Isla to hit her because she knew that Isla would and then Mara might wake to find it all gone. So, thank you so much for listening to our podcast one more time. I am your host, Ines Labarta, and I just want to give thanks to everyone who has made this podcast possible. My two wonderful writers helping me out with the Wandering Bar project, Rosemary Kay and Sophie Schuneman, and also to our great editor, Holly Moore, for this season. Thank you so much, Holly, for editing this. And I also want to thank to everyone who is making our project possible, to everyone who is sharing this podcast, who is sharing our website, um, to all the authors and fantastic artists who are collaborating with us in one way or another, giving us their art to publish in the website or being guests in this podcast. As a final note, if you like this content and if you like us, there are many ways you can get involved. We are always keen on expanding. So please just go to our website, thewanderingbar.net. That is thewanderingbar.net. And you can leave a comment or you can fill in a very simple contact form if you have any idea or any thought. And we would love to hear from you. Also, it's super helpful if uh, you share our content in social media, via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. We would be really, really thankful if you do that. So thank you so much and have a very beautiful day.